0: So let's turn our Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I was reminded this week of the beauty and the power of the gospel through a conversation that I was having with my family, with my kids and my wife. Uh, we were looking at some of the more uh, depraved things in our, in our culture, and the kids had some questions and we were diving into those topics, and I was reminded about God's ability to save when we're in absolute darkness and absolute uh, perversion, And isn't that amazing that Jesus loves us so much that he died for us and rose again so that we could be forgiven and our lives could be uh, transformed. And also the depravity that we see in culture is alive in me. It's alive in us. And just as much as uh, someone that doesn't know Christ needs the gospel today, I need the gospel today. That Christ died for my sins, that he rose again uh, to save us from our darkness and bring us into light. So as we pray and as we go into Ecclesiastes 4, let's just celebrate the gospel in our lives and also that fresh hope that God's ability to touch a life that, that is in darkness. So let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you love us. We think of the the old song, the childhood song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We don't deserve your love. And even as believers, we we wrestle with sin and darkness. And we we thank you that you come into our darkness with your light. And Lord, we also look at our city and our community with, with great hope, even though there's darkness. Because you have the ability to bring people into contact with you through the power of the gospel. And Jesus, even as we read Ecclesiastes 4, may we be reminded that you're the source of contentment. You're the source of companionship. In Jesus' name, amen. Two powerful words, contentment and companionship. If we can live in contentment and live in companionship, we have found some of the key secrets to life. Remember Solomon as he's writing this, he's showing us where emptiness is so we can find where true substance is. He's showing us what to do by giving us an example of what not to do. The goal at the end of Ecclesiastes would be that we are drinking of the fountain of living water of Jesus in a greater way. That we are experiencing the abundant life, the substance that he has provided for us. So let's look in verse one. Then I turned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun, and look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. Solomon returns to trying to make sense of life under the sun. He's really looking at things, absence of eternity and a relationship with God, just looking purely from a humanistic perspective. So he comes back to that outlook, and he says, Now I'm going to consider the tears of the oppressed. And as we think about those who are oppressed, it's overwhelming, isn't it? You think about those who are abused, children who are abused. You think of countries where there is genocide, and it can quickly suck us in, and we're completely overwhelmed with the tears of the oppressed. And that's where Solomon finds himself, and he says that there is no comforter. Now, is that true? Is there no comforter for the oppressed? There is a comforter for the oppressed. It's Jesus. Jesus understands pain. He understands sorrow. He's acquainted with grief. He was abused upon the cross. He's the greatest source of comfort to the oppressed. But Solomon, at this point, is not looking to the Lord for comfort. He also notes that it seems that power is on the side of the oppressor that the oppressor gets away with injustice and has the advantage. So here's his conclusion in verse two and three. Therefore, I praise the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has never seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Solomon says, man, the dead are the ones that really have the good deal. It's, it's better to be dead than to live in this world where there is oppression that is taking place. And oh yeah, even beyond that, it's better if you wouldn't even have existed. Now, is that God's conclusion? If God really thought it would be better for us to never have existed, would he have created Adam and Eve? Would he have created us? We look at conception, and God is the one who brings about life. In the womb is a miracle even the fact that we're here, that we have life, is, is God's hand. So if we get this conclusion, if we come to this place, if we're saying, you know, those who are dead have it better off, even though we look forward to heaven, there's great purpose in, in this life, or it would have been better if I was never born, that's the wrong conclusion. So if that's the place that you're at this morning, be reminded that's the wrong conclusion. God's got purpose for your life, purpose for your days. I want you to turn with me over to Psalm 73. I listened to a devotional yesterday out of Psalm 73, and I want you to understand that there is another conclusion when looking at the oppressor. Asaph is the writer of this Psalm in Psalms 73, and he is wrestling with the same question of why do the wicked prosper? Why are there oppressors? So look in verse 1 of Psalms 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, but their strength is firm. So he said, I know God is good. I know God is good to Israel. I know God is good to his people, but why are the wicked prospering? Here I am trying to serve the Lord. Here I am trying to walk in righteousness. I know I don't do it perfectly, but here's a knucklehead over here that's being absolutely wicked and he seems to be doing really well in life. And the psalmist says, this caused me to stumble. I'm having a hard time with this. And if you continue reading in the psalm, For a long time, he wrestles with this until verse 17. so jump jumped down to verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. He has a perspective change when he goes and spends time with the Lord. As he spends time with the Lord, he realizes that the oppressor, the wicked, is gonna have to stand before God. They're not gonna get away with anything. God is gonna make everything right. And when we find ourselves in the place of Solomon and the place of Asaph, we understand these are godly men that are wrestling with tough questions, and we'll wrestle with tough questions as well, but it's so important then to go and spend time in God's presence, in his word, in prayer, in worship, spending time with believers, in fellowship. As we do that, as we enter into his sanctuary, many times our perspective changed, doesn't it? You ever had that happen? Get in the word, and all of a sudden, God lifts your perspective. Get in worship. God lifts your your perspective. And so there is another way to respond to the oppressor. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes and look at verse 4. Again, I saw that for all the toil and for every skillful work a man is envied by his neighbor, this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Solomon observes, if you work hard, if you toil, And you're skillful in your work, then you will have people that will envy you, that will look up to you because of your skill inside of your work. And oftentimes we long for this. We long for the recognition of family, of friends, of co workers. Sometimes even inside of the body of Christ, we want other Christians to, to recognize our. Hard work or our our skill, if you would. We want the praise of men. But can that bring satisfaction? Does that bring you to a place where you're experiencing the abundant life? Maybe you have toiled and you have worked hard and you do have skill in your work and other people have envied you. Has that filled the longing of your heart? Right? It leaves us empty, doesn't it? This is a shallow motivation for work. There's a greater motivation of work saying, Father, I wanna glorify your name. I want you to be glorified in the work that I do. I'm not looking for the envy or the praise of others. Also, we can fall into the trap of not desiring to be envied, but envying someone else. You might be really good at what you do, but there's someone else who does it a little bit better. And we envy them, right? You go, man, I know God has gifted me and I know that I have a talent in this area, but this person does it better and it drives me nuts. And envy enters into our hearts and mind. Gore Vidal put it this way, whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. (laughs) We've all been there, haven't we? A close friend, someone that we care about, God blesses them, they have a measure of success, and inside, we're going, why didn't that happen to me? You know, I've worked hard. Or because they're our friend, we know some of their weaknesses and struggles. And we go, that, that's not fair. They've got all these struggles over here, but they've got all of this success and this skill in this area. Solomon also wrote in Proverbs, he says, a sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Envy's gonna rot us from the inside out. So if we're longing to have the praise of others or we're falling in the trap of of envy, it's gonna be rottenness to our bones. Achievement under the sun that doesn't put God first will always lead to frustration. So we wanna put God first, even in our work. Verse five, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. After reading verse four, our conclusion could be, well, what's the point? Well, well, why work? If receiving the praise of my peers isn't gonna satisfy me, I'm just gonna to go to laziness. Folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Solomon's basically saying laziness is cannibalism. You're eating your own flesh. You're destroying your own flesh if you go to this degree of laziness. Verse six, but better a handful with quietness then both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. A response to a challenge of laziness may be to overwork. There is something called overworking. We're probably more prone to that in our culture than laziness, sometimes both. But working seven days a week to grasp more is not God's intent. This verse is very practical. It's very powerful. A good friend of mine, we're in a Bible study together on Friday mornings. We call it faith group. Uh, He brings this verse back to our attention about every three or four months. I really wasn't aware of this verse until four or five years ago. So it's been on my heart and mind. You think about having two hands full, right? God is really blessed, Both of your hands are full. There's some prosperity there, but it's not enough. And so we toil and we're grasping for the wind. That's this inward drive that it's gotta be more. How much money do you have in the bank? Well, it'd be great if it was a little bit more. Gotta grasp for the wind, gotta make that happen. If you're into physical fitness, are you ever content with your physical fitness Or is it always got to be, I got to run a little bit more. I've got to run a little bit faster. I've got to lift a little bit more weight. That's not going to work out too good because our bodies are degenerating, right? We're getting older and older, and yet there's this expectation that I'm going to be more and more fit. It's never enough. It's this inwardness. It's inside of me where this toiling where there's got to be more, there's got to be more, there's got to be more, and there's the absence of quietness. So Solomon says it's better to be quiet, to have a quiet soul, to have one handful, than to be in this feverish, desperate attempt to try to gain more. Paul writes to Timothy, a young pastor, a young man, and he says, here is great gain godliness with contentment is great gain. If we can be in a place of of contentment, then we really have great gain. You brought nothing into this world, and you're going to bring nothing out of this world. Isn't that true? You were born with nothing monetarily. Stark naked, right? And when you die, you can't take any of it with you. So be content with what you have. Paul also wrote and said, with food and clothing, with these, be content. I wish he would have raised the bar a little bit, like food and clothing and a house over your head. But he says, if you've got food and clothes, be content. I think that most of us, we desire to be content. I think most of us are frustrated about this internal toiling and grasping for the wind inside of our souls. But how do we be content? Paul, in this truth of contentment, he said that he had to learn contentment. And that's true, isn't it? We're not naturally content. If we're not willing to learn contentment, to press in contentment, we're always going to be longing for more. So it has to be something that we're willing for God to teach us. He says, I've learned to be content whether I bound or abased. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. One of the most famous verses in the Bible— Philippians 4.13, did you know in context it's talking about contentment? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ is the one who is enabling me to be content. In Hebrews, it says that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. The conclusion of that is let your lifestyle be without covetousness. So because Jesus is always with me, I can be content. The secret to contentment is fellowship with Jesus. In his presence is the fullness of joy. Those times that we're focusing on Christ, drinking from his living water, aren't we in a place where, Jesus, you're more than enough. Jesus, you're more than sufficient. No matter what my circumstance is, I trust you, whether I'm abounding or I'm in a place where I'm in difficulty, I'm being abased. This verse right here is more than worth coming this morning, right? It's like, sometimes it's difficult to to get here on Sunday morning. This was worth the effort. Sometimes when we're listening to a message for 40 minutes, 45 minutes, God forbid I go for 50 minutes, man. It kind of goes, wah, 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 like, what did I listen? Like, underline this verse. Think about this verse. Pray about this verse. Say, God, I want to be in this place of having one hand with quietness instead of being in a place where I'm toiling and I'm grasping for the wind and longing for more. If I'm not content with what God has provided in my life right now, I'm not going to be content when He provides more. And that's that's the truth and the reality. Verse 7, then I returned and saw vanity under the sun. Comes back to his theme of of emptiness. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all of his labor. Nor is his eye satisfied with riches, but he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. Here's a man who is working hard, an individual who's, who's working hard, but he's all alone. Doesn't have a son, doesn't have... A brother and is never satisfied with his riches. Always longing for more riches. But he never stops to consider the question, why am I toiling so hard? Why am I depriving myself of good when I don't have anyone to share this with? And sometimes we fall into that same trap, don't we? We're working so hard, in fact, we may be overworking and we're neglecting the most important people right around in our lives. And in our minds, we go, I'm working so hard for them. I wanna be a a breadwinner for them, And, and that's true. We need to provide for our families financially, but that's only one aspect. We also need to provide for them relationally, right? We wanna be in their lives. So if we're always at work, and maybe we could really get away with working this much and be fine financially. But because of that inward toil of, I've got to have more, I've got to have more. I'm worried about this and I'm worried about that. We, we work, we overwork, and we neglect those relationships. So here's a man who's working so hard, he's never satisfied, and he has no one to share the blessing with. We get into the second truth of the passage and it's companionship. Two are better than one. Do you believe this? Two are better than one. We live in a very individualistic culture. We take pride in being able to get through life alone. But God did not design us to journey through life alone. God in and of himself is a relationship. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's a bit of a mystery. Three distinct persons, but yet one God. But in and of himself, there's fellowship. And we see great fellowship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're created in the image of God. So we're created for relationship. God designed us for relationship with him and relationship with one another. And two are better than one. You think of the dynamic duos throughout the scripture. Jonathan and David. Both men of faith. Wanted to see God glorified had a tremendous friendship in this life. I don't think David would have been the man that he was without Jonathan in his life. Peter and John in the New Testament grew up fishing on the Sea of Galilee, called by God to follow Jesus. Great team. John was there for Peter in a time where he really needed it when Peter denied the Lord. Paul and Barnabas, a great team for God. Jesus sent the disciples out in twos. He says, go out two by two. He didn't want them going out alone. Two are better than one. Just like contentment is worth investing in, companionship is worth investing in because they have a good reward for their labor. When you work on a project, you can get a lot more done with four hands instead of two. If you're pulling weeds, that extra set of hands is a real blessing, isn't it? To have an extra set of eyes and ears, a heart and mind engaged in what you're doing, you get a greater reward for your labor. So whatever you're working in and you're laboring in, if you do it with someone else, if you embrace this team concept that two is better than one, you're going to get a greater reward. You're going to get more done than if you simply labor alone. But yet we wrestle with this because a lot of times we go, I can get it better done by myself, right? Right? I can do this quicker by myself. For certain personalities, there's this idea, if I let somebody else into my labor, then they're going to mess it up. There was always those group projects in school. And if you weren't a great student like me, those were wonderful. You're looking for the smartest kid in the class, and you're like, hey, can we can we team up? And he's looking at you like, eh, you're going to screw this up, right? And then there's those really normally type A, high achievers, real focused on details, and that is the worst assignment of the year. I have to team up with somebody, right? So it takes a little bit of faith and trust in God to say two is better than one. I'm, I'm going to get more reward for, for my labor. In verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. I grew up close to my great-aunt, Bertha. She lived about 15 minutes from us in Rogue River, Oregon, a beautiful spot. I knew her as a widow. She was never able to have kids. We would stop at her house. There wasn't a time that I went to her house that she did not serve us ice cream. So she was a a favorite great-aunt. She had a wicked, crazy, bizarre salt-and-pepper shaker collection. Any of you old enough to have a relative that collected salt and pepper shakers? Is that still a thing? Do people still uh, do that? If you do, you don't have to admit it. But she had this like bookshelf of just hundreds of bizarre salt and pepper shakers. She lived into her 90s. And because she was alone, she fell. And she broke her hip in her kitchen. She didn't have her emergency clicker uh, with her. My mom and aunt would check on her about once a week, but it was too much time and she died on the floor alone in her kitchen because she fell alone and there was nobody there to be able to pick her up and her health was already so so weak. Church, I've gotta tell you, in this life, you're gonna fall. You're gonna fall physically, but you're also gonna fall spiritually. As much as we don't wanna admit that, We're going to have times of sin. We're even going to have times of willful rebellion. And if we're alone, there's nobody there to pick us up. But if we're doing life with someone else and we're in relationship with someone else, then they're there to be able to pick us up, to point us back to the Lord in place of uh, encouragement. This section of scripture is a great application for those of you that are married. The greatest thing that you can invest in in your relationship is companionship to foster that friendship with one another but it's not just a marriage passage it does apply to marriage but god designs for all of us to be in relationship no matter what our circumstances if you're not married you can be in great relationship inside of the body of christ So as we go through life and we get busy, it's easy to say, I don't have time for relationship. Make sure you're investing in your spouse relationally, but also make sure you're investing in relationships, period, because we're going to fall. And when we fall, we need someone to pick us up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Married couples, you know the benefit of this. You've got the built-in heater right there on a cold night. On a hot summer night, not so great, but on a a cold night, it's perfect, right? My grandparents tell stories of it being so cold in their homes that having to sleep with siblings to be able to keep warm. A lot of the world still operates that way. We're blessed that we have furnaces and ways to, to heat our homes, but In Solomon's day, in Solomon's culture, this would be the primary way of keeping warm at at night. But if you're alone, then you're going to be cold. In verse 12, Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. There's those times in life where someone comes against you. And when they do come against you, it's so good to have a companion that's going to stand by your side and say, we're going to go through this together. This is what hits me about this section of scripture. If you wait to find relationship when life hits the fan, it's too late, (laughs) right? It's like, oh, I really need a companion at this moment because things are difficult. You still might be able to foster a friendship, but really this is having people in your life so when difficulty comes, they're already in place to, to rally around you. The end of verse twelve: A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Two, 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 and then all of a sudden we have three. A rope with three strands. What's the third element to companionship and relationship? It's Jesus. So wrap each other around Christ. This is the key to having deep and good relationships, companionship, and marriage. Friendship outside of marriage? Because Christ is the strongest bond. How do you do that? How do you put the element of Christ into a relationship first? To celebrate the gospel. To realize I'm a sinner, and you're a sinner, and Christ has died for us, so the atmosphere of our friendship is based on the gospel. I'm not expecting you to be perfect, You're not expecting me to be perfect. And then out of that flows grace and mercy, doesn't it? Jesus has given me grace. He's given me mercy so I can extend grace and mercy. Having a friendship also that includes truth is wrapping each other around Christ because Jesus came in the fullness of grace and truth. I'm so thankful that my wife is able to speak truth into my life. By the way, today is our 17th wedding anniversary, so 17 years today. <laughs> Excited about that. And she's able to speak truth when I need to hear it. I have a few other friends that are able to speak truth when, when I need to hear it. That's wrapping each other around God, sharing what God is doing in your life, sharing verses that are speaking to you. Praying together is a very practical way of bringing Christ into that friendship. Friendship a Christ-centered friendship. Before we move on to the next verse, a couple of things that I have observed about relationships in our culture is that first, we're very starved for relationships, that really technology's made us more isolated uh, than we've ever been, but we're also lost a little bit on how to be able to pursue relationships. And the buzzword in culture right now is community. Everywhere you go, they're advertising community. You know, when you go to the gym, they're advertising community. You know, Gardening, they're advertising community. Everywhere people are looking for groups of people to be able to connect with. But to me, and I might be wrong, what's underneath that is really a, a selfish motivation. Saying, I have to have people in my life so that my needs can be met. As we read this passage most of us our minds go to i need to have someone in my life that can pick me up when i fall i need to have somebody that can keep me warm i need to have somebody that can be my advocate when i have an adversary and that's true but you know the way to get someone like that in your life is actually to be that for them first and to not want to be served but to be willing to serve to approach like, okay, I'm going to this gym or I'm going to this coffee house or I'm coming to this church and I'm not just coming to get my needs met relationally but I'm coming to see how I could serve somebody else. And God in his goodness, in the mystery of how he works as we start to serve somebody else then we have healthy relationships and in turn, people are willing to love and serve us as well. If you wanna have friends, be friendly. And so for us to really have the fellowship that God intends, we have to get off of that selfish focus and get on that Christ focus to say, I wanna be able to serve. From my observation, the people with the healthiest relationships are those that are willing to serve. Those that look through the mindset of not what I can get genuinely, but what can I give? And as they're willing to give and serve, then in turn, they they have very healthy relationships. Verse 13, better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. It's better to be poor, young, and wise than to be old and foolish where no one can speak into your life. For some reason, the older that we get, the harder it is to receive correction and instruction, isn't it? You little whippersnapper, what are you telling me what to do, right? I've been doing this longer than you are alive. And that's a dangerous place to be in. We always want to be teachable. We always want to be humble and be able to receive instruction and correction. Not always easy. Verse 14, for he who comes out of prison to be king, although he was born in his kingdom. So this young man, he comes out of prison, elevated to being king and he's poor. In verse 15, and I saw all the living who walk under the sun, they were with the second youth who stands in his place. So everyone goes after this new young king and they forsake the old king. There was no end of all people over whom he was made king. So he has an incredible influence, yet those who will come after him will not rejoice in him. Very quickly, there'll be another generation and they're not gonna like this young king. He's going to get old. The next generation's not going to rejoice in him. Surely, this also is vanity in grasping for the wind. And we see this in life, don't we? There's a leader, but before long, there's a younger, more charismatic leader. Everybody comes alongside of them. There's the athlete of the day that rules the, the day. But he gets old, she gets old, and here comes another athlete, and everybody falls and follows them. Movie stars are the same way. So if we're living for position, it's going to be empty, it's going to be vanity, it's going to be grasping for wind because we're very quickly going to be replaced. My pastor growing up would always say, if you think you're really special, put your hand in a bucket of water and pull it out. What happens? All that space gets replaced. I've observed this in life. You know, someone can work at a job for a really long time, and the day they leave, they're replaced. And here comes new homeboy, you know, home gal. And she's coming right in and just takes the desk, takes the computer, takes the phone, and the company moves on. The organization moves on. The church moves on. Life moves on very quickly. So if we're living for a position, it's going to be emptiness, contentment. Do you find yourself toiling and wrestling and grasping for more? Maybe this morning the process is going to begin with saying, God, I'm willing for you to teach me contentment. If Paul says we have to learn contentment, it may begin with saying, Jesus, I'm going to enroll in your school of contentment. Because it is a terrible way to live to always be grasping for more. I think it's significant that Solomon notes quietness with one handful. Sometimes we need to just simply be still. Take some time during the day. Don't be on your phone. Don't be on your tablet or iPad. Don't be in front of a screen and sit and simply be quiet. Don't talk, right? Don't have others talking to you. Spake, take some time to meditate upon the Lord. Be still and know he's God. And out of that, we gain perspective, don't we? I just need to be quiet. And in that, rejoice in who God is. Content, but, but then also companionship. I'm sure for some this morning, as we th- read through uh, companionship, you may be saying, woe is me. I, I am all alone. And all this message did is highlight my loneliness. And that's an easy trap for us to fall into when we read sections of scripture like this. And I want you to see that Jesus is the ultimate companion. He's the source of contentment, but he's also the ultimate companion. You are never alone because Jesus is with you. Yesterday, my son Wyatt comes in in the afternoon from riding his bike. He says, Dad, do you know that there's eight in the family? There's eight of us in the family. So I look at him, and I go, well, well how do you figure that, right? Because there's six of us, my wife and I, four kids. He's like, well, it goes through the whole family, all six. And then he says, there's God and Jesus, and they're always with us. So there's eight in the family, right? so we had a brief conversation about the trinity but at the end of the conversation it was still eight right <laughs> there, was, there was eight that was with us and i was i was really encouraged because you could see the light bulb go on in his heart and his mind god and jesus are always with us just like the rest of the family we're always here we're always always together god and jesus are with us you are not alone jesus is with you you have the ultimate companion in him And all of us can look at broken relationships and hurt in our lives and kind of play the woe is me card and, oh, I hate church. It just highlighted my loneliness. Or we can choose to serve others. We can choose to say, I'm going to invest in others. I'm going to invest in relationship. So spend some time this week, this month, looking at these two powerful words, these two powerful lessons of contentment and also companionship. Would you stand with me and let's, let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are the source of contentment. And we look to you, we look to your sufficiency, we look to the reality of your grace and your presence in our lives that you are the bread of life. Would you help us we want to enroll in your school. Would you teach us contentment? Protect us for grasping for more. May we be thankful for who you are and what you've provided. And God, also, would you bless relationships, companionship. Inside a marriage, would you bless us in companionship? Help us to invest relationally with one another. Lord, for those that are single, would you bless their relationships inside of the body of Christ. For us as a whole at this nine o'clock service, as we come week in and week out, would you deepen our relationships with one another? So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.